0: for youth serving stakeholders. We are the RFK National Resource Center for Juvenile Justice, and we are on a mission to transform the youth justice system by partnering with people like you who are passionate about improving outcomes for youth, families, and communities you serve. You will hear from experts in the field and on the ground who have championed reform on the local, state, and national level. We are your hosts. I'm Jody Martin. I'm John Toole. And I'm Michelle Darling. In today's episode, Essential Elements of a Trauma Informed Juvenile Justice System, Dr. Keith Cruz, Professor and Director of Clinical Training at Fordham University, talks about the importance of implementing trauma screening, ways trauma can change thought and behavior patterns, and intervention strategies for stronger case plans. Let's jump right in.
1: Greetings, everyone, and welcome to our podcast series 2022. I have the distinct privilege of welcoming Dr. Keith Cruz this morning for our conversation. Keith and I have had the privilege of working together as far back as nearly 20 years as we were partners in the Models for Change, Systems Reform, and Juvenile Justice Initiative funded by the MacArthur Foundation. Since our launch of the RFK National Resource Center in 2013, Keith has continued to bring his relevant, critical expertise to the work that we've focused on in youth transformation of the justice system. More recently, Keith has remained an invaluable partner to our national transformation efforts in state and local jurisdictions across the country, particularly in our six-site jurisdictional work in the Denison-Mondoro Project, where he has helped jurisdictions bring practical knowledge of how to implement screening and assessment in the behavioral health and trauma arena. Keith, welcome please offer the audience a little bit more on your expertise,
2: your research, your current
1: title, and your current
2: role. Thank you, John. And first, let me let me just express my gratitude for the invitation to come speak with you today and, you know, share some of my experiences and, and certainly hope that it's going to be uh, beneficial for the field uh, as well. You know, John, uh, you know this, uh, but for uh, the listeners, I'm a psychologist by training, clinical psychologist, and more specifically, I I have a background and expertise in juvenile forensic psychology, and I have been engaging in both uh, research, program evaluation, and program uh, implementation, uh, as well as providing both direct services, screening, assessment, and uh, treatment services to youth that uh, intersect the juvenile justice system, as well as offering a variety of consultation, technical assistance, and training supports uh, for juvenile justice systems. Over uh, 20 years now, I've been doing this work uh, as well. So that's a little bit of the broad frame of, of the context, uh, but my my current uh, position is a professor of psychology and director of clinical training and. Um, clinical psychology doctoral program at uh, Fordham University uh, in New York City. In addition to that, I'm also the director of behavioral health screening services uh, through the National Youth Screening and Assessment uh, Partners. And there's just great synergy between both my day job and the consultation and work that I do through NISAP, much of which has also uh, been uh, Great collaborations uh, with you and RFK uh, in working to implement both behavioral health, mental health, and trauma screening, and looking at the intersection of how um, these screens intersect with and findings that juvenile probation officers uh, are coming up with from risk needs assessments uh, to better engage in active case planning, and I would say to better overall meet the needs of justice-involved adolescents.
1: The practical benefit to our juvenile justice system is enormous. I'm going to take a first effort at asking, so why is trauma a particular focus area for your work, for your research, specifically as it relates to those youth involved in the juvenile justice system, Keith?
2: I have reflected on this many times. Uh, People ask me, you know, how did you become... interested in trauma and, and juvenile justice. And, you know, I think its origins for me are actually back as an undergraduate psychology student at the University of Nebraska, where I started doing just some volunteer work at what we then called domestic violence shelters, uh, where I started to interact with uh, young boys and girls uh, who were fleeing, you know, situations of domestic violence or family violence and looking and, and seeing the impact of that disruption on on their lives. You know, from that, you know, I also um, historically have done a lot of work with adolescents who have engaged in what we call problem sexual behavior, and one of the things that emerged from this work was often finding in, in my assessments, my evaluation, and the treatment that I was providing that there was often overlap. You know, adolescents who had, you know, been found or adjudicated delinquent for a sexual offense, many of them had victimization histories, uh, physical abuse, uh, sexual abuse, victimization history. So I started to see some of that overlap, uh, even, even among that work. And this was around the same time that the field Uh, as a whole, was getting very interested in adolescent psychopathy, and more specifically, that idea of the development of callous and unemotional traits. And I was finding, you know, through both the research and also through my clinical practice, uh, you know, at that time, that there were some adolescents who definitely were presenting with some of those characteristics, that idea of them seeming interpersonally cold, or not necessarily caring for family members, you know, friends, peers, other other people within their community. And what we were finding is that some adolescents with those characteristics had very extensive trauma histories. And that got me to really rethinking about could some of these characteristics that, you know, professionals in the field were identifying as callous and unemotional traits or psychopathy actually be influenced by this uh, traumatic event exposure history. I think my interest in this and my work in this area has just been facilitated by many years of productive collaborations, most importantly with Dr. Julian Ford from the University of Connecticut Health Center and, and among others, which is, you know, reinforce that traumatic event exposures and trauma reactions. You know they fundamentally impact both a child and adolescent or an adult it fundamentally impacts the way that their brain processes information and that has an impact on on body responses uh you know as well and this together collectively creates problems with self-regulation and self-regulation difficulties when they emanate from this complex pattern of traumatic event exposures and trauma reactions Um, increases the likelihood that a youth can become system-involved, have contact with law enforcement, be subsequently found delinquent, and find themselves in the juvenile justice system. And I think trauma, and I'm going to use that term here ubiquitously, is fundamentally a problem in relationship disruption and self-regulation.
1: Keith, what a great foundational answer. And again, I just hope that the audience recognizes how foundational it is to understand whether or not those trauma histories or those trauma symptoms exist in the youth that we serve within the juvenile justice system. Can you speak a little bit about the prevalence of the trauma histories or the active trauma symptoms for
2: those youth? We as a field will use the word trauma uh, ubiquitously, um, almost like it's it has become an umbrella term. What's really important is that we have to break down that umbrella term into some fundamental components, uh, because mm-hmm. these fundamental components are really important to be thinking about the impact of quote trauma on, I use functioning, you know, and it starts with, a, an understanding of traumatic event exposure. These are those, uh, experiences that, a child or an adolescent will occur, you know, throughout their, uh, throughout their lifetime. And it really starts, starts the process or the stage of somebody. To start to develop a trauma reactions. But what we know from well over, you know, decades of research at this point is that traumatic event exposures, physical abuse, sexual abuse, exposure to community violence, witnessing community violence, the traumatic loss of a family member, a loved one, or a friend through violent means. Um, these are all examples of traumatic event exposures, and they are almost universal among justice involved adolescents, you know, well over 90% of justice involved adolescents, when they're asked about those types of traumatic events they've experienced over their lifetime, will acknowledge at least one. And on average, uh, justice involved adolescents will acknowledge about four or five different types of traumatic event exposures. From that, and kind of based on that history of these adversities and traumatic events, Some youth will go on to experience fundamental changes in the way that they experience their emotions, the way that they think about themselves, the way that they think about others, the way that they will start to change their thoughts and their behavior patterns uh, in response to those uh, traumatic events. And we refer to those as uh, trauma reactions. And when you get enough of a load of these types of trauma reactions, you can be diagnosed clinically by a mental health professional with with a trauma disorder. The most common one that most people are familiar with is post-traumatic stress disorder. And really good research over the past decade has identified that approximately 15% of adolescents who are system-involved currently meet diagnostic criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. And what's important to note is that that is about, you know, three to four times higher than rates of uh, PTSD among non-system-involved adolescents uh, as well.
1: So Keith, I think a two-part question, really clarifying the difference between historical trauma events and current trauma symptoms. Mm -hmm. I'll lay that out first and ask you to respond to that. My follow-up is then, so what's the cost of not understanding that at the time we seek to intervene?
2: We have to really think about understanding the different types of historical events. And what I commonly describe is that we need to look at sort of the full range of different types of traumatic event exposures uh, as well, because they are so common. We don't just want to focus on, on, on like physical abuse exposure or sexual victimization. While those are extremely important, the more common uh, types of traumatic events are, you know, witnessing and experiencing family violence, witnessing and experiencing community violence, which uh, makes sense, you know, given some of the stressors and adversities of of the communities that many of our youth uh, uh, reside in. But I think what's also really important is recognizing trauma loss. I was a bit skeptical in some of those refin- uh, some of those research findings, and then I started, you know, working <laughs> with adolescents, and just hearing them discuss the number of family members and friends that they have lost over their lifetime. And what this does is it creates a load. It creates a load of chronic stress uh, that can impact the development of these more active mm-hmm. trauma reactions. Mm-hmm. And what we know is those trauma reactions are going to ebb and flow uh, on a day-to-day basis. It doesn't mean that uh, youth with this type of traumatic event history is going to chronically or always be in sort of an acute trauma reactive mode. But what's challenging is it's going to ebb and flow, and it's going to be associated with different uh, environmental triggers that could be both internal and external, and that can have a very dysregulating impact on uh, adolescents and we will often see the manifestation or the external presentation of these reactions. And unfortunately for many adolescents, that can look like impulsivity, that can look like anger, and that can look very much like an aggressive response. And what's critical is that we, we think about the extent to which can that impulsivity, can that anger, can that aggression, might it be a manifestation of this traumatic event exposure history, and ways that the adolescent is currently thinking and experiencing their own emotions and the way that they're thinking about their world around them.
1: Well, Keith, again, I, I think as a probation officer now many moons ago, I hear a lot when we're in the field, kind of, oh, come on, that was, you know, that was 12, 13 years ago. How could that be impacting the behavior now? So there's a dismissive attitude among many of the practitioners uh, frequently in some of the jurisdictions we work, I think you've laid an extraordinary foundation for us to understand why we need to have knowledge of that history and how it may be impacting or interpreting how we interpret that current behavior. So with that, Keith, what, what is the cost of us not understanding that those histories or those active symptoms or that diagnosis may exist
2: You know, I think there's a couple of ways to answer that question. I I think the first is the cost is that we end up not getting a full picture of what might be driving the youth's delinquent behavior. And Fundamentally, that's what our screening and our assessment processes are designed to do. So there's a cost in that without recognizing this impact that we're then developing a case plan, we are making referrals, we are thinking about supervision strategies that are not aligned with the proximal drivers of the use of delinquent behavior. And so we end up with what I call like an attenuated or a case plan that doesn't have a good fit um, with what's uh, with the use of level of functioning. And then the cost is that we don't meet our obligation to be really thinking critically about the types of services that an adolescent needs uh, to improve their functioning. And then ultimately there's a cost uh, to the public as well, is that we may not actually be designing services in a way that adequately uh, manages and reduces the factors that are gonna be driving the use of future delinquent behavior as well. And I think the final cost is that without going through this inquiry, through screening and assessment, I think the final cost is that we will fail to really appreciate resiliency, that many adolescents with this type of traumatic event exposure history, think about those numbers that I mentioned, not all of those adolescents will go on to develop clinically significant trauma reactions. And so what that would suggest is that, you know, there may have been other services, there may have been other buffers, there may be active coping skills that an adolescent has naturally developed or through other types of uh, services. That we would recognize as strengths and failure to do a full query, screening and assessment and examination. Here is we have a cost in that. Then we may be uh, implementing services or mandates or supervision uh, practices that may actively disrupt current strengths that may serve, uh, that may be serving as a buffer or a protective factor. And that's at a substantial cost to the adolescent and their families and caregivers, and actually their community when we do things to inadvertently trample over or not adequately harness strengths uh, in an adolescent.
1: Once again, Keith, you're making the case, of course, for us understanding that this history or this current situation exists for this youth in order to inform a more targeted, appropriate intervention, clinical, programmatic intervention that might ameliorate the risk for future reoffending. And certainly, I should comment, you've identified the Trauma-Informed Decision Protocol, Mm -hmm. uh, and that has been, in my humble estimation, Keith, an extraordinary contribution to the field. It lays out a path for us to ensure that we're understanding all of those aspects that you've shared with us about that history or current situation. What are the most prolific barriers that you find for jurisdictions to implement effective trauma screening? At the appropriate
2: time. Well, I answer that in a little bit of a roundabout way. But what what I've really discovered in working with systems to implement trauma screening is that that process is much easier if systems have already done the work to implement general mental health screening as well. You know, screening for depression, screening for substance use problems, uh, etc. Systems that have already done the work uh, to Think about the purpose and context of behavioral health screening from within their system, have appropriately trained their staff to have the knowledge and the skills to both competently and confidently implement a mental health screen that work already being done, then it's not a far shift. It's not difficult for probation officers to approach training on a trauma screen, to be modifying uh, policies and practices around general mental health screening to incorporate trauma screening, and to then then implement that as well. When that work has not been done, or there is not good agency support Uh, through policies and practices and training uh, around recognition of the impact of mental health in general, then you're not going to see trauma as likely being a very uh, impactful on a USA level of level of functioning. And so there's kind of that system component uh, that I think that that can represent a barrier. A common though barrier that I often will experience is really something different from what I just mentioned. The word is out. probation systems, the juvenile justice system recognizes the impact of traumatic event exposures and trauma reactions. I don't have to convince leadership at the local level or even at the state level that this is not important uh, because they see the impact uh, on the adolescents and they see the impact on on probation officers or the detention staff grappling with trying to assist a youth who's in that pattern of dysregulation so i don't have to make that sell anymore then the follow-up and i think the biggest barrier is then what do we do when we actively you know screen and then identify the need there's great challenges in and setting up um Appropriate referrals for follow-up assessment, and then getting a youth access to appropriate uh, trauma, either trauma-informed or trauma-specific treatment services, you know, within within communities.
1: Keith, and I want to take you a little farther down that road because there's much about practical application that is critical to overcome what you just uh, suggested in your comments. We we certainly experience in multiple jurisdictions the reaction that says we already screen our behavioral screening, uh, which focuses on mental health. And there are a couple of questions on trauma. That's enough. We don't want an additional tool. Can you comment on that and how you react to that for local jurisdictional implementation?
2: So I think what we need to do is we need to think about any approach to screening for quote trauma as also reflecting those two different components that I mentioned. Um, so I think a good screening practice for trauma is going to provide a basic review of traumatic event exposures. What has a youth witnessed? What has a youth experienced over their lifetime? And a good trauma screening practice in juvenile justice will think about the most uh, endorsed types of traumatic event exposures. Um, to really identify that as a history. Then it sets the stage for thinking about uh, a screening practice that acknowledges that there are many ways that trauma reactions can manifest and look. We need to think about uh, those intrusive recollections or those, maybe those nightmares or those unwanted or uncued memories that an adolescent may, may be experiencing. We need to think about avoidance. We need to think about after the experience of a traumatic event? Has it changed the way the youth is experiencing their emotions positively or negatively? And then uh, how has this impacted their impulsivity? A good screening practice needs to attend to and think about minimally addressing each of those types of uh, trauma reactions. You just can't do that through one or two questions. You're going to potentially be under-identifying because you're missing core components uh, of trauma, or, you know, if it's based primarily on exposures only, you will be universally identifying every youth. And we need screening to be nimble, we need it to be quick, but we also need it to accurately identify the youth who are most in need of a further trauma assessment, and that fundamentally is going to be based on a good understanding of those active trauma reactions, where we would hypothesize that it's having a direct impact on their day-to-day functioning.
1: I always wanted to ask you this. So because I comment on this in the field, to your point, what's your opinion on the Adverse Childhood Experiences questionnaire in terms of getting us to the place you just referenced?
2: This is a, a really important question. And first and foremost, I just want to say outright um, that I know of no empirical research looking at ACEs, you know, our traditional uh, listing and accounting of adverse childhood experiences. I know of no study that has supported the identification of a cut score, for example, on your traditional ACEs that reliably and validly identifies youth uh, who are experiencing active uh, trauma reactions. And so I think that's important to state outright. And so therefore, you know, there's even, you know, one publication that I know of where, where the authors of that publication have actively recommended that any community or any clinical agency or juvenile justice agency or child welfare agency that is utilizing ACEs as a screen that they stop because there's no evidence for that. And that's not what the ACEs checklist was actually generated for. But what I will say is that. From that, though, is we've learned an awful lot from ACEs studies done with justice involved adolescents. And ACEs in and of themselves are some of the ACEs factors are very consistent with that idea of traumatic event exposures. And, but what we also see from ACEs is that it's going to cover other more general adversities or stressors. That are not necessarily traumatic event exposures, right? Um, because if we're familiar with Aces, we know that it has, you know, factors looking at: as a child, did you have a parent with a mental health or a substance use problem? Did you have a a, a parent or a caregiver that was incarcerated? Those in and of themselves are not consistent with the idea of a traumatic event exposure, but the Aces research. In non clinical adolescents, as well as adolescents, has really supported that, you know, this load of ACEs factors sends up a signal about a host of psychosocial and behavioral and system involvement adversities, right? In fact, you know, there was a, a systematic literature review published in 2021 looking at, you know, ACEs studies, uh, specific in injustice involved to adolescents. And we know that there's this dose response uh, effect. Four or more ACEs is associated with things like suicide ideation, you know, gang involvement, self-reported or official reports of uh, adolescent arrests and offense histories as well. But we have to remember that correlation is not causation, right? And so we best want to think about that history as representing a risk marker. It can signal maybe a pathway you know or an association with risk but it doesn't help us to recognize why that association exists i think that there are many intervening factors that can help explain why this load of aces may be associated with uh, delinquent behaviors you know throughout adolescence and some research is pointing to that the load of mental health problems and that the load of like trauma reactions helps us to understand that linkage point and therefore We want to circle back very practically, you know, from this type of research, is that good trauma screening, it can be contextualized by an understanding of ACEs or traumatic events, but the screening decision itself needs to be based on the more recent, proximal, i.e. over the past couple of months, trauma reactions.
1: That's a beautifully articulate uh, explanation of the importance of understanding the histories, but the active trauma symptoms, understanding that as we collaborate to provide opportunities for these youth to overcome them and extricate themselves from involvement in the juvenile justice system. I wanna shift gears just a little on a topic that I know is uh, of significant interest to you. And I just preface it with the work that the RFK National Resource Center has done in Milwaukee and Chicago, Seattle, and Minneapolis. It's provided ample evidence of historic trauma in neighborhoods and communities. Can you comment on the impact of racial and historic trauma?
2: Yes. And I think, thank you for raising this, John. It's such an important question. And I would suggest that, you know, our research knowledge around historic and racial trauma is exploding now. And it's something that is going to be very important for us to follow. And of course we've been negligent as a field in recognizing this despite decades of research and findings about racial and ethnic inequities and disparities within the juvenile justice system. You know, to piggyback then and come back to your question is we think about historic or racial trauma as being connected to systemic and structural racism that has permeated our culture and our systems, you know, for for generations. So we want to think about this as a further form of inquiry for us to consider that Black and brown adolescents, also fully acknowledging all of their intersectional identities in terms of gender identity, gender expression, sexual identity, sexual orientation, uh, etc., fundamentally experience different types of interactions uh, with their environment because of structural and systemic racism. Chris Henning's recent book on the criminalization of Black bodies is a great example uh, of, of this phenomenon. Black youth compared to white youth will experience different sorts of interactions with law enforcement, for example, that can end up minimally being a stress, stressful experience uh, and that can turn into a traumatic event uh, exposure. Therefore, we need to think about the extent to which we can incorporate a focus on racial traumatic event exposures and day-to-day discrimination practices among justice-involved adolescents as informing our understanding of their current mental health difficulties. And I'm really proud to indicate that work in my lab is starting to reinforce that this finding occurs. We are finding among justice-involved adolescents that their day-to-day experiences of interpersonal racism in the form of microaggressions are associated with PTSD as symptoms. And in fact, we find that relationship even after we control for all of the other types of traumatic events that are common among justice-involved adolescents. And I think we're just hitting the tip of the iceberg here, but we owe the youth that we serve uh, to fully acknowledge both the historical and the systemic factors that could be impacting their day-to-day functioning.
1: Keith, again, wonderfully put. And we owe that on a routine, every youth basis that becomes involved with our youth justice system or is at risk for being involved. Uh, We owe that attention to understand those factors as we develop our work around intervening and supporting that youth in getting out of the juvenile justice system and functioning and operating well. Uh, I know you agree with that. I
2: Could, could not agree more.
1: Yeah, almost without fail, Keith, particularly in those jurisdictions that have done an outstanding job in creating trauma and mental health screening methods and practices, our work has taken us to the problem of service access. I'm encouraged by your seminal new initiative that may provide an exciting chance to address this challenge. I want to give you the opportunity to share some background and details about what I believe is known
2: as TARGET, Yes, yes. And, and so TARGET is a empirically supported manualized intervention to address trauma reactions among adolescents and adults. And TARGET is one of the only manualized treatments that's been recognized by national organizations as an evidence-based trauma treatment for youth in the juvenile justice system. Okay, And that's not to suggest that there are not other interventions that don't have uh, empirical support. The TARGET is is a model that I think that is we have a good grounding in the empirical research around its effectiveness in enhancing youth functioning and also uh, reducing those active uh, symptoms of uh, trauma. Now, TARGET, in terms of its full implementation, is like many other interventions it requires a significant amount of investment by a system to train clinicians or behavioral health providers to implement, to achieve the fidelity uh, necessary uh, to get those types of outcomes that the research uh, supports. What we also recognize is that implementing these types of uh, practices and interventions in the juvenile justice system or the criminal justice system it's challenging. So we need to be nimble. We need to think about the ways that we can modify and enhance the ability of these interventions to fit within the systems that that we are working with. And a couple of initiatives that we are working on is to take some of the core foundational skills that are Psychoeducation about the impact of stress on the brain and the body, and some immediate active coping skills around trauma reactions. And we're looking to train and support supervisors uh, within uh, juvenile justice to to gain an understanding of these skills, for them to be able to utilize the skills themselves, and then to also sort of coach and reinforce uh, these skills among their supervisees among the line-level staff who have day-to-day interactions with youth. And really, the whole practical impetus behind this, John, is yeah. just fully recognizing is that, honestly, as a field, we, are, we will never train enough clinicians. We will never have enough behavioral health providers to fully meet the trauma needs of youth across the juvenile justice system. So why would we not try to capitalize on the relationships among direct care staff, among probation officers that also have relationships with the youth that they work with and supervise. Through the work of RFK and others, you know, we've seen a shift in, for example, in probation as moving away from the idea of an officer who just is responsible for compliance monitoring and reporting to the court. Um, There's been a shift with a recognition that probation officers are in a role where they can both mentor, supervise, and support and enhance skill development. Keith, you asked
1: the question, what a great explanation. You asked the question, essentially, why wouldn't we? And as I was listening to you, I I continually asked, why wouldn't we or why don't we make a full commitment to that understanding of adolescent development and what the brain development during that period tells us? about how we can help change positively the behavior. Why wouldn't we commit to positive youth development opportunities with pro-social connections, including these relationships with probation officers, which have a research base for it. Those relationships can be very positive and very supportive of a change in that behavior. So as you spoke, you indicated it takes a significant investment. I wanna caution the listeners, the investment it is in committing to what the evidence shows works. It is into coaching, mentoring, overseeing uh, an, an enhanced role that can provide some fundamentals, as you spoke to, for understanding how to self-regulate more effectively, which would reduce the risk of reoffending. I simply ask the question from your very logical explanation of everything you've shared this morning, why wouldn't we? Why don't we more routinely? Uh, we certainly encourage that. And I'm thrilled that you had a chance to talk about your approach, this target initiative, I hope there's great interest following this podcast. Keith, I hope our listeners will take advantage of the way you've articulated the necessity of this screening and assessment process, uh, particularly around what you just described in the target initiative, and query you and your role within NISAP about how they can learn more about the implementation of this approach moving forward.
2: Yeah, that's great. Uh, it's, It's work, obviously, John, that you know, I'm personally and professionally uh, passionate about and, you know, welcome the opportunities for further dialogue uh, we, you know, with systems to continue this work. Because I really do believe that meeting the needs of adolescents uh, in terms of their mental health difficulties and, and, and trauma uh, specifically is going to allow systems to better address those dynamic delinquency risk factors. They go hand in hand. Then further equipping the workforce, and by this I mean the juvenile justice workforce, to understand trauma in this way. And then ultimately, the gains that we will get from our systems, recognizing, coming up with strategies uh, for screening and assessment and intervention, and implementing those in a way that can help us achieve sort of the broad goals of, you know, rehabilitation and protecting public safety.
1: To that end, Keith, we say that frequently, certainly from the RFK National Resource Center. This is not a discussion of a soft approach. This is a discussion of an informed research-based smart approach that in fact, attends to the needs of community safety. In fact, does attend to reducing the risk of reoffending for the youth. And just as importantly, in this trio of factors, it attends to the positive opportunities for the future of that youth, as a productive member of every community in which they
2: grow up. Absolutely. Well well said, John. Keith, is there a danger in over-assessing youth? I do think there are some dangers in over-assessing, but we need to be really explicit about what we mean uh, by the danger as well. This question will often emerge in the context of like mental health screening or trauma screening. I will hear questions about, for example, like the shelf life of a screen or how often should we be screening and how often is is too much. And while we have improved our general understanding about uh, the use of screens and we understand a lot of information about the reliability and validity of screens and how to then translate that into effective practice uh, in, in the field. We just don't have a good research base uh, to understand diminishing returns, for example, through multiple screenings or over what particular time frame that screens uh, maintain their validity. And one of the challenges with that is screening is in essence a snapshot of a use recent functioning. <laughs> Right? And that's what it's intended to do. And it's intended to sort of throw up a flag of concern and to identify those youth that may be uh, having current uh, mental health difficulties and then following up on that as well. And so in the absence of research finding, what we want to do is we want to fall back on our general understanding of the properties of the screen, that it is a snapshot, that it is focusing on a brief period of time. And then we need to think about then developing common sense practices about uh, a process of when it's appropriate to rescreen and when it's not and in general we that can be informed by the time frame that the screens are addressing but what we also know from implementation science is that any screening practice must be done thoughtfully it must be embedded within a process and a policies and procedures that inform the ability of say for example a juvenile justice professional to appropriately and inform and contextualize to a youth why they're being asked to complete the screen and then how the results of that screen will lead to further assessment and i believe one of the dangers of sort of over screening or over assessment is when that is not done and it's not appropriately contextualized because then a youth in responding to the screen doesn't have adequate information for them to understand why they're being asked these questions. And I find that that is critically important. And then there's also sort of another cost. I think the cost is following your policy and procedure and then not, you know, doing your screening or doing your assessment and then not doing anything with that information. You're constantly just reassessing, and then you're not thinking about the linkages of that information to referrals and to structured decisions around case plan activities to achieve recidivism reduction. And then when a youth gets in trouble again and comes back to the system, well, we go through that process of assessment again, and we don't stop to think about, well, last time that we saw this youth, what services did we put into place? And were they well-matched? Uh, to the information that we had about that adolescent at that given time. It's a fundamental problem that is contributed to both by mental health professionals and also juvenile justice professionals, that we don't adequately think about the, the fit between the services and the needs that the youth had at that time of their first screening and assessment, and then looked at what worked and didn't work from that, and to utilize that to inform our follow-up assessment. I think if we did a better job of matching case plans to the needs of the youth at any given time point, it's going to logically reduce the need for further reassessments, uh, et cetera. Keith,
1: your research and your practical experience, combined with the obvious direct consultation and technical assistance you provide to local jurisdictions, puts you in a great place to not only understand the specifics of the subject matter that you've been thinking about today, but certainly a more broad view of the youth justice system. If you could change one thing about our current juvenile justice system, what would that be?
2: Well, I, I think that the one change that, that I would uh, recommend, and it's not a small change, you know, and it requires incremental change and a really holistic commitment. And, and that would be for systems to fully embrace what uh, colleagues and I have referred to as adopting the essential elements of a trauma informed juvenile justice system. Uh, And this is not at the expense of our other programs, our risk reduction strategies, our work with fully embracing and integrating the voice of youth and families uh, in our practices. It's not to the detriment of any of those components, but it's looking at all of those components uh, with a full understanding that these initiatives, these areas, these management strategies, these supervision strategies, these decisions need to be informed by an understanding of adversities, traumatic event exposures, and trauma reactions as fundamentally a mental health difficulty that dysregulates uh, a youth. Uh,
1: Is there any special message that you would like to leave with our listeners?
2: I, I commonly try to remind everyone that I work with is that all adolescents and particularly adolescents who come in contact with the juvenile justice system, they need buffers, not barriers. Right. So we need to look at the work that we do as buffering adolescents' natural healthy development, as opposed to creating barriers that disrupt or stop that process of a healthy development. And then regarding mental health and trauma specifically, we need to recognize that the vast majority of adolescents and their traumatic event exposures are interpersonal. They occur in the context of experiences with families, with caregivers, with friends and with their communities. And then as an outcome of that, it's through physically and psychologically safe relationships that adolescents are going to heal, recover and thrive.
1: Keith, thank you for sharing your insights, your perspectives, your thoughts and your extraordinary expertise with our
2: listeners today. Thank you, John. I appreciate it.
0: We want to thank you for joining us today. We love hearing what you think of the podcast series and your ideas for topics. Share your thoughts with us at RFKNRCJJ at rfkcommunity.org. And to learn more about the RFK National Resource Center for Juvenile Justice and ways to integrate trauma-informed practices, visit our website at rfknrcjj.org and follow us on Twitter at RFK Youth Justice.